morning. I'm sure uh, everybody knows what today is and what most of us woke up today remembering. Uh, Ten years ago today, one of the worst events in, in history, and, and uh, if, if not the worst event ever on live television uh, that's ever been uh, witnessed by millions and millions of Americans. Well, Billy Graham said this at the National Day of Prayer and Remembrance on September 14th of 2001, just three days after 9-11. He said, quote, no matter how hard we try, words simply cannot express the horror, the shock, and the revulsion we all feel over what took place in this nation on Tuesday morning. September 11th will go down in our history as a day to remember. How true are those words? I I remember it like it was yesterday. Ten years ago today, every American's life was changed to one extent or another. And it was one of those one of those moments in history that people will reflect back on for decades, for their whole lives. And they'll remember exactly where they were and what they were feeling as images of these terrorist attacks flooded the television. We remember the fear, we remember the pain, we remember the anguish that we were feeling as we were watching these events unfold on live television. And many of us, Many of us probably remember also the confusion that we were feeling as this was going on. For myself, I was was far away from God. I had been working in the casino industry for several years. Uh, I had just gotten off my shift at work. Um, I had been working in a casino on the Las Vegas Strip, and my shift was typically from 9 at night to 5 in the morning. And so I'd come home at 5, get home around 5.30, and my routine was to come home, get on the computer, get online. And what I do to unwind is I'd play chess on, on Yahoo uh, against people just to kind of get my mind off of, you know, the last eight hours and to, you know, get myself to the point where I'd be able to go to sleep by 7 or 7.30. Well, in the middle of this game that I was playing, my opponent told me that he was just going to resign um, and that he was going to go watch the news because something, and nobody was even sure exactly what, uh, something had just crashed into one of the Twin Towers at the World Trade Center. And so I thought, well, you know, that, that sounds kind of interesting, and uh, it's almost time for me to go to bed anyway, so uh, I'll, I'll see what's up with this. So I went into the living room, and I turned on Fox News. Uh, and I have no idea how long I was watching before, out of the right side of the screen, another plane uh, came out and, and blasted through the other Twin Tower. Uh, I mean, it could have been five seconds that I was watching. It could have been five minutes. I I really don't know in retrospect. Uh, I I was kind of in shock. I couldn't believe at what I had just seen on uh, on live television as I sat there thinking, surely, you know, hundreds if not thousands of people just died right in front of my eyes. And it it was, I was in shock. I, I felt like it was a dream. I felt like I was detached from reality. I guess what you would kind of think of an out-of-body experience being like. That's what it was like for me. Um, It was almost like I was dreaming about something that was just so horrific. It was something that never, that my mind couldn't even have imagined. I couldn't have imagined something that horrific. Well, I was kind of 
jostled back to reality a few seconds later when the news anchor who's reporting said something about the United States appears to be under attack. I mean, I was in Las Vegas. I was, I was 3,000 miles away from these events. And I could not have been more scared if it had been in downtown Las Vegas. It was like my, my fight or flight instinct kicked in. And man, I, I, was, I was just ready to run. I, I was ready to run for the hills. I, I had a family. I needed to protect them. We were under attack. And so I ran upstairs and I woke Christina up. And I, I, I turned the TV on. Um, I, I think I, was, I, I couldn't express what was going on. So I had to turn the TV on. I couldn't just say, hey, we're under attack. There are planes flying into things. So we turned on the TV and, and we watched as all of these uh, events unfolded. I, I was just scared out of my mind uh, as all this was happening. And, and suddenly I thought, well, wh- what about my parents? You know, maybe they'll need to get ready to run too if, if this is something that's really widespread. And so I called my parents and woke them up uh, pretty early and told them to turn on their TVs. And by this time, my, my fight or flight instinct had subsided a little bit. I, I was kind of getting more to the side where I, I was ready to fight. I, I, was, I was starting to get angry, but I was still uh, kind of in shock. But Christina and I sat there and we watched as uh, they, they played the footage of this, this plane crashing into the, the Twin Tower. And then next thing you know, a, a plane had crashed into the Pentagon. The news channel we were watching, Fox News, uh, was based in New York City, and what they were doing is they were sending their reporters out into the streets. They were, you know, kind of right in the middle of the action, and so they were sending their people out there, and before we knew it, uh, the, the Twin Towers collapsed one after another, and we, we all saw these, these clouds of smoke and dust and, and who knows what just racing down the streets, and the faces of people who were scared for their lives running running away from this cloud of, of smoke. What a, what a horrible thing to see. You know, at the time, uh, I, I was in a really dark place in my life. I hadn't been to church in literally years. Uh, I rarely even thought about God anymore at that point. And yet, in the middle of this situation, I was not only uh, traumatized, I, I was not only scared, but I, I was also really confused. I mean, how could God let something like this happen? How could God let all these people die? How could God let the terrorists get on board these planes and hijack them and, and fly them into buildings? How could God let that happen? And millions and millions of other people, Americans and people around the world, were asking the same thing. God, how could you let this happen? I mean, if God is all-powerful, couldn't he have stopped it? Yeah, you'd think he could have. And if so, why did it happen? People have different ways of of answering that question. Some people would say that God is not all-powerful. If you guys have heard of the book, uh, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People?, Uh, Rabbi Harold Kushner essentially arrives at the conclusion that God doesn't want evil in the world, but he's not powerful enough to step in and do something about it. Well, I reject that notion of God completely. I I don't agree with that. Some people left God out of their questioning completely, and they came up with these bizarre, twisted conspiracy theories about how it all happened or why it all happened. But for me and millions of other Americans, we started questioning God. How do I know that I wasn't alone? Because for the next three weeks, statistics tell us that church attendance skyrocketed for three weeks. 
It was, it was almost double. More people were going to church than they had in almost a century, percentage-wise. It was, it was a huge event for people. They were seeking comfort. They were asking questions about God. Well, one thing can be said with certainty, and that is that whether a person believed in God or not at the time, this attack, these attacks of 9-11 gave people a religious jolt. There was no more sitting on the fence with God. If you were sitting on the fence, you were knocked off to one side or the other. Mark Driscoll, who uh, was only 30 years old at the time and just beginning to establish his church in Seattle, Mars Hill, uh, reports that 9-11 caused him to realize how fragile he was as an individual, personally. He also says that it caused him to become even more dependent on God and more urgent about planting churches. Since then, his church, Mars Hill, has just exploded. They've, they've got thousands and thousands of people attending their services every week, and Mark Driscoll has gone on to co-found something called the Acts 29 Network, uh, a network which is dedicated to planting and establishing healthy churches. And in fact, they have established more than 400 uh, churches. And that started with 9-11 and Mark Driscoll's response, his realization of what that all meant in the long run. Sam Harris, on the other hand, uh, had a different reaction to 9-11, spiritually speaking. He was already a self-proclaimed atheist, but the events of 9-11 were like pouring gasoline on a fire for him. He was a, a doctoral student in philosophy at Stanford University at the time, and he started working on a book that he would publish in 2004 called The End of Faith, which helped to, uh, to spark a, a movement of atheism called New Atheism. If you haven't heard of new, atheis, uh, new Atheism, New Atheism is not uh, only more militant than atheism prior to 9-11, but it is far less rational. In fact, it's not rational at all. At one time, atheists would punt to uh, science, maybe reason, uh, evolution, things like that to justify their atheism, but the New Atheists didn't need a reason other than to simply believe that all religion is bad and the world would be a better place without religion. And so they completely reject reason. You cannot reason with them because no argument, they say, will convince them that God exists. It's totally irrational. R. Brad White is a, a former atheist who, by the time 9-11 happened, uh, had become a Christian. And he notes the irony of what a lot of atheists were thinking and saying and feeling when he writes, quote, when faced with a tragedy like 9-11... Christians lean on God, whereas atheists will look at the same situation and say, God is cruel. Why didn't he stop this from happening? So they use that 9-11 tragedy to reinforce their beliefs, end quote. And the irony here, of course, is that they're saying God is mean, and at the same time, they're saying God doesn't exist. It's irrational. That's new atheism. The reality is that this was absolutely horrible event, but it's not the only horrible event in the history of the world. In fact, there are absolutely horrific things that go on each and every day all over the world. We live in a world that's constantly filled with pain and grieving and anguish. With that much said, it's impossible to go through life without the occasional need to mourn and grieve in the face of tragedy. We don't like to mourn. We prefer 
being happy. We prefer being kind of carefree and everything's great and everything's rosy. But that's not always the reality. It's not always the reality. If we're being honest, we're not carefree. We never have been. We never will be. Of course there are things that we care about. We always care about something. And so grieving is going to be inevitable. I think God knew, I know that God knew, that grieving and mourning was going to be inevitable for us. And I actually think he designed us to feel grief and to mourn. In the second of the Beatitudes, Jesus said something that seems really, really strange if you think about it. He said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. That's from Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Really? Who, who actually wants to mourn? Who, who wants to, to, to feel that? The thing, the thing that we need to get here is the word blessed. What do, we, what, do, what do you think of when you think of being blessed? I think of receiving something that I don't deserve, and so it's a, it's a blessing to me, but the Greek word actually means happy. Happy. So with that in mind, Jesus is saying, happy are those who mourn. What? Is that crazy? Does that sound totally contrary to human reason? It sounds kind of weird, but Jesus doesn't have it backwards. He's got it right. In, in order for us to make sense of what he's saying here, we need to bring ourselves to an understanding of at least three things. The first thing is this. Mourning is unavoidable. It's an unavoidable part of life. It's inescapable. There's this false idea out there that if you're a Christian, you won't have difficult times in life. Life will be all roses because you're walking with Jesus and nothing can go wrong. Nothing can hurt you. But Jesus, by saying this, is telling us that grief, tragedy, sadness, mourning, maybe even a little bit of anger, those are all natural and normal parts of being a Christian, of following Jesus. Everyone grieves because everyone, at one point or another in their lives, is going to experience a sense of loss of some sort. Yeah, even the strongest, even the most faithful followers of Jesus are going to go through trials and tribulations where they will need to grieve. They will need to mourn. They'll feel that sense of loss. We know that even Jesus mourned. Uh, he, he was not only fully God, but he was fully human as well. He was fully man as well. And so he felt both physical and emotional pain. And while a person can't uh, you know, read through the gospel narratives and miss the fact that Jesus had an awesome sense of humor and sometimes his wit was just spot on and you know, right off the, the cuff, his wit was, was biting sometimes. It's worth noting that the Bible never tells us that Jesus actually laughed, although I'm sure that he did. I, I have no question that he did because he did have a sense of humor. But it does tell us, however, that Jesus felt sadness. In fact, he felt sadness to the point of weeping over the death of his good friend Lazarus. Shortest verse in the whole Bible, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. It wasn't because his good friend Lazarus was dead. No, Jesus knew that when he came to Lazarus, when he, when he came to the, the tomb where Lazarus was laying, 
Jesus knew that he was going to bring him back to life. He knew that. So he wasn't mourning over his death. He wasn't weeping over his death. Uh, The reason that he mourned, we're going to come back to that in just a minute. But uh, we also know that Jesus mourned over being rejected as the Messiah of Israel. Listen to what we read in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. When he, that is Jesus, approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In this instance, Jesus is uh, he's referring to what's going to happen in AD 70 when Jerusalem gets trampled and leveled. But Jesus is mourning over the consequences that Jerusalem, as the biggest city in Israel, he's mourning over the consequences that they would face for rejecting him, for sinning. The point here, again, is that mourning is an unavoidable part of life. That we should expect it, and maybe we should even be prepared for it, keep ourselves prepared for it. In talking about the resurrection and the, uh, and the power that Christ has over death, we all know what Paul wrote. He writes, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? But I think that we all probably felt the sting of death 10 years ago today, as we were watching all of these people dying live on television. And yet, how many of us would say that the pain and the, the, the mourning, the grief that we were feeling then at that point, as we reflect on it, how many of us can say that that made us feel blessed or happy to feel that? No, we need to understand that Jesus isn't saying that mourning is the thing that's going to make us happy. The blessedness or, or, or the happiness that Jesus is talking about isn't found in the mourning, the act of mourning itself. If we look carefully at what Jesus is saying, we see that the sense of happiness is found in the fact that they will be comforted, that they will be comforted. Happiness doesn't come because of the experience of mourning itself. Rather, happiness comes, from, comes as a consequence of mourning. Comfort is something that is either given or received. We comfort one another. See, Jesus wanted his followers to know that the kingdom of heaven isn't a place that's full of isolated individuals. That's not the kingdom that Jesus came to prepare the way for. No, it's designed to be a community, a community of people who are there for one another, who love one another and who support and bear one another's burdens. And that's what Jesus has in mind here, a community in which a person who experiences loss, grief, or mourning is able to be comforted by others rather than being left to themselves. So the second insight that we gain from this second beatitude is that mourning is natural, that's the first one, and should be done in the context of community. When a person mourns in isolation, they are much more likely to experience bitterness than they are to experience forgiveness. They're a lot less likely to learn from the experience. They're a lot more likely to hold on to those feelings from that experience. 
Back to Jesus mourning over the, the death of his friend Lazarus. Again, we know that Jesus was not mourning over the death of, of Lazarus. So why was Jesus mourning? Why was Jesus weeping? It's because the family and the friends of Lazarus were all weeping. They were all grieving. They were all mourning. They were all feeling this pain of loss. They didn't know that Lazarus was coming back. As far as they knew, he was gone forever. So they were weeping. They were grieving. And Jesus was allowing himself to be a part of that community. He was allowing himself to be a part of that community, and thus he was weeping with those who were weeping. He was mourning with those who were in mourning. Why? So that he could be alongside them to comfort them when they needed to be comforted. Listen to what Paul writes in the middle of the 12th chapter of Romans. And keep in mind that as he's writing this, starting with Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he's really talking about how we live out our faith in Jesus. He's instructing the Christians in Rome in what it means to live out their faith. So he writes in verses 15 to 18, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Does that sound like something Jesus did? Yeah. He goes on. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Be at peace with all men. In light of something like 9-11, that's easier said than done, isn't it? That's hard. Paul even goes on to say, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what he writes in verse 30. Now remember, he's speaking to them as a group, not as individuals. Paul knows that the person who mourns alone, the person who experiences grief in isolation, is less likely to recover from their grief in a healthy way. He knows that a person who, uh, for example, loses a child to an act of senseless violence is much more likely to seek out retaliation if they're left to themselves. And this is difficult because some people almost feel, feel shame when they're mourning or when they're grieving or when they're hurting. Some, some people you know, prefer to be left in isolation. You can, you can ask Christina. That, that's how I am. If I stub my toe really bad and I, I'm like bent over in pain, you know, she wants to come and, and help me. And my, my thing is, just leave me alone. I, I want to suffer by myself. So it's kind of contrary to a lot of people to do that, to say, okay, I'm going to let somebody comfort me. There's a reaction in some people to just completely isolate themselves, but Paul's instruction is keep the door of fellowship and community open with each other, and we do that by sharing the burdensome pain that a mourning person or a hurting person is feeling. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. See, the person who shares in another's burdens, the community around the hurting person, doesn't feel the inclination toward bitterness that the person who has experienced loss or hurt is feeling. And by sharing in that burden, they earn the right to comfort that person. They earn it. And because they don't feel the same bitterness, because the community doesn't feel the same bitterness, they're able to steer the mourning, grieving, hurting person away from retaliation. And we need to understand that when Paul says not to retaliate, he's not saying 
that you shouldn't seek justice. Let's say that, uh, that somebody, I'm out here mowing the yard, and somebody just comes up and decides to beat me up. Is, is Paul saying that, that I should just let it be and, and forget about it? No, he, he's not saying that at all. Uh, he's just saying you shouldn't extract your own justice. You shouldn't seek your own justice. And sadly, while most of America was gathering together and really coming together as a nation, there were some individuals who were going around beating up Muslims, beating up people from halfway around the world on their own. They were going into, into nightclubs. They were going into convenience stores. They were finding them at gas stations and attacking them. And Paul's saying that's not the way to do it. That's not the way to solve anything. Paul's saying that we shouldn't do that. Instead, put the matter in God's hands and trust him with it. And sometimes a person who deserves justice, who deserves punishment, will get that punishment in the form of the Holy Spirit weighing on their conscience. And let me tell you that when the Holy Spirit weighs on a person's conscience over something, some evil act that they've done, it is worse than any punishment that man can inflict on that person. It is worse because it doesn't go away. Sometimes the person who deserves justice uh, will receive that punishment, that justice, when they stand before God someday. Sometimes we won't even see them in any form experience justice. Sometimes they'll receive that punishment when it's extracted by the governing authorities. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 13 that the government, the governing authorities are appointed, they are ordained by God for what? For the, for the sake of punishing evildoers. And that's exactly what the United States government did with those who committed the atrocities on 9-11. Those who were responsible for organizing and financing the terrorist attacks of 9-11, the government did what God appointed them to do. And Osama bin Laden, he's not with us anymore. Saddam Hussein, he's not with us anymore. That's temporal justice. Not only were they punished by the government that God ordained here, those guys are also going to have to stand before God. Kind of a double dose. So the first thing that we need to understand is that mourning is natural, necessary, it's normal, it's an unavoidable part of life. The second thing that we need to understand is that it's meant to be done in the context of community rather than in isolation. The third principle that we get from this beatitude is that mourning is only temporary. Why will those who mourn be blessed or or happy? It's because they will be comforted. When they're comforted, they will be happy. They won't be experiencing the hurt, the grief, the mourning. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul singles out a man who had been committing this, this horrible sin. He'd been basically getting together with his dad's wife, and he wouldn't repent of his sin. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul tells them the instruction that he has for them is, cast this one out from among you so that his flesh will be burned and his spirit will be saved. Disassociate yourselves from this guy. That way, either he'll turn from his sin or he'll be consumed by his sin. And he did that. That's the good news. It worked. This guy turned from his sin. We don't know how. We don't know when. We don't know how long it took. 
But we know that once he did, he was left with nothing. He didn't have this community of Christians to lean on. He didn't have family. I imagine uh, his, his dad would have disowned him. His father would have disowned him. He had nobody to lean on. So listen to what Paul writes. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority. So that, on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. Forgive him. Forgive him for not turning from his sin when you guys warned him to. Welcome him back in. Why? So that you can comfort him. Why? Why comfort him? Because his anguish, his grief, his hurting doesn't need to go on any longer. It only needed to be temporary. The sorrow was strong, but it was only for a season. It was, it was just temporary. No matter what the reason of mourning is, whether it's over the sin of another, whether it's over the loss of someone or something, whether it's over some evil that you witnessed on national TV, live. We all need, we all need the experience of forgiveness, healing, and restoration. So the first point is mourning is inevitable. The second point is that mourning should be done in the context of community. And the third is that mourning is only temporary. Maybe the reason the church attendance only spiked for about the following three weeks is because the people who were mourning were experiencing, the things that they were experiencing were, were only temporary. Maybe they were comforted. Maybe the reason that it returned to normal is that people found the comfort and the answers in the church that they were looking for, and so they just went back to their daily lives. But maybe it was the opposite. Maybe it's because they didn't find comfort or answers from the church. I imagine that there are, uh, there are different reasons for each person who came for those three, re- three weeks and ended up going back to their normal routines. But today, today we remember that there is one thing that's universal. We all mourned then, and we mourn now for the firefighters, the policemen, and the civilians who were killed 10 years ago today, and for the military personnel who have been killed in wars against those nations ever since. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Thousands of them. Today we join with those who are remembering loved ones who were taken from them on 9-11 or as a result of what happened in 9-11. And we mourn with them. Now before we close, I want to briefly address a a huge topic, if that's possible to be done. And that is, why would God allow 9-11 to happen? Why would he allow something that evil to happen? And I want to start out by saying, I don't think there are any pat answers I don't think that, you can, that we, with our finite understanding, our finite perspective, can look at this and, and say, okay, God, I see exactly what good came out of this. Some of us don't see it. Some of us don't see it right now. We can't maybe understand a specific instance of evil, why God allowed a specific case of evil to be carried out, but the Bible does speak about why God allows evil to transpire in general, in a general sense. So maybe we can address the question not necessarily exclusively pertaining to 9-11, but just evil in general. Why does God allow it? Well, C.S. Lewis uh, wrote a couple of books on this topic, one before his wife died and one after his wife died. In the first book called The Problem of Pain, 
C.S. Lewis writes, quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. In other words, sometimes God allows us, sometimes he leads us to the valley of the shadow of death. Sometimes he allows us to go through hard, trying, difficult times of suffering and pain because that pain becomes like a megaphone for God. And we can't miss his voice in those times. And through that megaphone, he's whispering to us, this is the result of sin. This is the fallen world that humanity caused. Life is fragile. Would you be ready to face me right now if you'd been among those people who died? Would you be ready? And we're listening to that if we're thinking our way through it rationally. When we think about it, life is full of calamity and tragedy. Yeah, 9-11 was one of those tragedies. It was an enormous tragedy, probably the biggest tragedy any of us have witnessed on live television. But we'd be naive to think that there isn't calamity going on in the world every second of every minute of every hour of every day. Every year, over 50 million people die. That's over 6,000 people dying Per day. That's 100 people every hour. Since we've been in here, 100 people around the world, many of them not knowing Christ, have entered into eternity. And if we look at those people who are dying and we look at the causes of their death and, and, and look at why they were dying, we find that it wasn't a case of them just being old and, and dying of old age, you know, fall, you know, falling asleep and, and dying in their sleep. That's usually not how it happens. Usually, It's people dying of disease or people dying of starvation or people dying because of something, some evil act that another person did to them. And many of these people are entering eternity. Many of these people are dying after facing long, very difficult struggles with intense pain. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke's gospel narrative. Luke chapter 13, verses 1 to 5. Now on the same occasion... There were some present who reported to him, reported to Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem. I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And so here what we see is two different events. One is a mass murder that's ordered by Pilate. These people are are shedding blood, they're, they're, they're giving sacrifices, and their own blood gets mixed with the blood of their sacrifices. We don't know exactly how, but Pilate sent these guys in, sent his armies in, to kill these people who were making sacrifices. And it resulted in the death of 18 people. The next, was, or, uh, the next was, was an accident, a tower falling on a bunch of people. Why did God allow those things to happen? See, in, in the absence of, of pain and suffering, hurting, grieving, we're prone to think that eh, this world's so good. I, I love this world, and, and I'm going to hold on to the things of this world. We're prone to think that the world around us offers some sort of lasting 
satisfaction, some sort of lasting happiness. And sometimes, not always, but sometimes, God allows pain and suffering to serve as something of a wake-up call for us. That's what Jesus is saying here. Sometimes, when we witness the death of other people or we, we hear about the death of other people, it's so that God can get through to us. It's so that we're, our attention is on our mortality and we're turning our spiritual ear to him and we hear him saying, this is the consequence of sin. This world cannot make you happy. This world will cause you hurt. Repent, turn away from it, and find your happiness in me. The point that C.S. Lewis was making is that we're much more likely to listen to God in the midst of trials and tribulations than we are in the midst of peace. And that's what Jesus is saying there too. We're a lot more likely to listen to God in light of horrible, horrible circumstances. God uses that time when we're focused on, on him while we're questioning him to speak to us, to make us realize how ugly sin is, how disgusting sin is and what the consequences of sin are in this world. John Piper says this. He says, quote, Hardly anyone in the world feels the horror that our sin is. Physical pain we feel. And so it becomes God's trumpet blast to tell us that something is dreadfully wrong in the world. End quote. That's the point that C.S. Lewis was making. That's the point that Jesus was making. God allows people to carry out evil through their free will because so many times we need to be woken up from thinking that this world is great. We need to be woken up from thinking that sin is no big deal. That God can just excuse sin and we can go on being happy. That we can cling to things of this world. We can cling to our sins because we don't realize how ugly they are. Friends, sin is such an ugly thing and God tells us that in the midst of something as horrific as 9-11. We need to be reminded that there is no earthly pleasure or treasure that compares to Christ, that compares to knowing him. For the Christian, the loss of something or someone loved is to remind us that Christ more than compensates for anything that we might lose in this life. And that only he is worthy of our worship. Only he is worthy of our devotion and our love. Listen to what Paul says, Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Paul knew hard times, by the way. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The things that he used to love and hold on to, the things that he used to find pleasure in things that he used to treasure? They're rubbish. They're rubbish. And it's worth trading those things in for the sake of knowing Jesus. Listen to what the Old uh, Old Testament prophet Habakkuk said in the midst of his grieving. He said in Habakkuk uh, 3, 17 and 18, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exult in the Lord. 
I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. See, here's the point. Famines, terrorism, earthquakes, persecution, you name it, any kind of evil, God allows those things to happen so that we as Christians, we as his people will be reminded that knowing Christ is the greatest treasure of all and so that the world who hates God will look at us in the midst of these incredibly difficult, trying circumstances and they will just marvel because they see us experiencing the peace that passes all understanding. They see us grieving but healing as a community. And so these things, these evil, horrible things, actually become a tool that God uses to tell the world, to remind the world that he created the world. He created all things for himself. The unbelieving person who is intellectually honest enough in the face of something like 9-11 to evaluate evil circumstances will be drawn to Christ when they reach the realization that evil is not just a matter of personal opinion. Is morality, is, is uh, my sense that something is evil, is that just my opinion? Is that just something that's up for debate among people? Or is there something that's really evil? Let me put it this way. One person says that 9-11 is a horrible event. Another person says somebody cutting them off in traffic is an equally horrible event. Would anybody agree with that? No rational person would agree with that. No person who's prone to reason, reasonable thinking, would agree that being cut off in traffic is just as bad as 9-11. And yet, if morality is just our opinion, then you can't say that getting cut off in traffic is not worse than 9-11. And so if you're really thinking about it, when an unbelieving person sees evil, they think, where do I get this idea that something is wrong with that? Is that just my opinion? Is this up for debate? Or is there something that's outside of humanity that's, that, I'm, that I'm reflecting on that gives me this sense that something is right or, or wrong? And so God, God's nature, His righteousness, becomes the yardstick against which we measure moral judgments. Is, there really, is it really just a subjective opinion? Or is it an objective truth that something like 9-11 is evil? And so somebody who really thinks about it, this is how C.S. Lewis became a Christian. When they look at evil, if they're honest, if they're willing to reason, they'll be drawn to Christ. In closing, uh, may our reflection on the, the 9-11 attacks, the terrorist attacks on 9-11, or any other gross injustice or evil circumstance, may it cause us to seek peace and comfort, not only as a community with one another, but that we may hunger all the more for the comfort that only God can provide, only God can give. And may it cause us to see Jesus, and only Jesus, as the one thing in all of human existence to treasure. The reality is that God is right there in the middle of every single situation. He either caused it to happen or he allowed it to happen. 
Either way, His purpose in all situations, His purpose is to draw you closer to Jesus, to draw an unbelieving world to Himself. And the only proper, the only correct response that we can give is to worship Him and glorify Him. Let's pray. God, today we remember what we were feeling. Many of us, Lord, feeling anger. Many of us feeling the, the confusion all over again. God, I just pray that you would be our comfort. I pray, Lord, that you would teach us through all circumstances in life that only you are worthy of our love and our devotion that there is nothing else in this world that will offer us any sort of lasting happiness or satisfaction, God, but that you are it. So teach us, Lord, to cling to you, to hold the things of this world with an open hand, but to cling to you with all of our might, to seek you with all, of, all, of, all that we have within us, God, to love you and to follow you. In times that we don't understand, God, teach us that we can understand this, that you are good, that you are sovereign, and that nothing in this whole universe can happen without you saying, I will allow it or causing it to happen. God, we love you. We pray that you will draw us closer to you as we remember those horrible events. And God, you also told us something that was maybe the most challenging thing Jesus ever said. And that is to pray for our enemies. God, that is so hard. That is so contrary to our will, God. But we love you and we belong to you. And so we surrender our understanding and we pray for our enemies, God, that they would somehow come to know you. We know that before we were Christians, before we knew you, we were, we were ugly and dirty too the horrible things that the the 9-11 terrorists did to this country, we did things that were horrible and ugly to you. And you forgave us. You loved us anyway. And so God, we pray for our enemies. And we pray that you would redeem them, that you would bring them to yourself, that you would draw them to yourself, and that they would turn from their ways, God, and know your son, Jesus, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus.